Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of this weird little thing I am calling Void Communion. I will be your mistress of the void, and it will be my absolute pleasure to guide you on this weird, strange, literary journey through whatever the hell I feel like narrating at the time. It, it's probably always going to be a little bit spoopy, though. I, I know my truth. Today's story is Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's a favorite of mine and has been for about 20 years now. My god, I'm getting old. Anyway, some content warnings before we get started. Native American listeners, I want to apologize in advance for uh, a little bit of problematic language and ideals, and I'm, I'm sure things that I am missing as a white person that uh, I just take for granted and let pass over my head. And uh, ladies, you know we always get the short end of the stick, but this is like, this is some proto-fridging bullshit, honestly. It's, it's bad. And I guess then a special apology to any Native American women listening, because you get the worst of both worlds. Uh, less significant, but nevertheless of note. Uh, just, uh, a word on the audio, guys. I did not intend to do any of this, but it happened. That said, guys, this is the first time I have ever done anything like this. The audio at points is just unforgivably bad. The, the narration audio, that is. I think I did a pretty decent job on the soundscaping, if I do say so myself. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I will leave you fine listeners the judges. Now, without any further ado, Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne Young Goodman Brown came forth at sunset into the street at Salem Village but put his head back after crossing the threshold to exchange a parting kiss with his young wife. And Faith, as the wife was aptly named, thrust her own pretty head into the street, letting the wind play with the pink ribbons of her cap while she called to Goodman Brown. Pretty, put off your journey until sunrise and sleep in your own bed tonight. A lone woman is troubled with such dreams and such thoughts that she is afeard of herself sometimes. Pray, tarry with me this night, dear husband, of all nights in the year. My love and my faith, replied young Goodman Brown, of all nights in the year, this one night must I tarry away from thee. My journey, as thou callest it, forth and back again, must needs be done twixt now and sunrise. What, my sweet pretty wife? Dost thou doubt me already, and we but three months married? And God bless you, said Faith, with the pink ribbons. And may you find all well when you come back. Amen, cried Goodman Brown. Say thy prayers, dear Faith, and go to bed at dusk, and no harm will come to thee. So they parted, and the young man pursued his way until, being about to turn the corner by the meeting house, he looked back and saw the head of Faith 
still peeping after him with a melancholy air, in spite of her pink ribbons. Poor little Faith, thought he, though his heart smote him. What a wretch I am to leave her on such an errand. She talks of dreams, too. He thought, as she spoke, there was trouble in her face, as if a dream had warned her what work is to be done tonight. But no, no, twould kill her to think of it. Well, she's a blessed angel on earth, and after this one night, I'll cling to her skirts and follow her to heaven. With this excellent resolve for the future, Goodman Brown felt himself justified in making more haste on his present evil purpose. He had taken a dreary road, darkened by all the gloomiest trees of the forest, which barely stood aside to let the narrow path creep through and closed immediately behind. It was all as lonely as could be, and there is this peculiarity in such a solitude, that the traveler knows not who may be concealed by the innumerable trunks and the thick bows overhead, so that with lonely footsteps he may yet be passing through an unseen multitude. There may be a devilish indeed behind every tree, said Kevin Brown to himself, and he glanced fearfully behind him as he added, What if the devil himself should be in my very elbow? His head being turned back, he passed a crook of the road, and, looking forward again, beheld the figure of a man, in grave and decent attire, seated at the foot of an old tree. He arose at Goodman Brown's approach, and walked onward side by side with him. You are late, Goodman Brown, said he. The clock of the Old South was striking as I came into Boston, and that is full fifteen minutes are gone. Faith kept me back a while, replied the young man with a tremor in his voice, caused by the sudden appearance of his companion though not wholly unexpected. It was now a deep dusk in the forest, and deepest in that part of it where these two were journeying. As nearly as could be discerned, the second traveler was about fifty years old, apparently in the same rank of life as Goodman Brown, and bearing a considerable resemblance to him, though perhaps more in expression than features. Still, they might have been taken for father and son, and yet, though the elder person was as simply clad as the younger, and as simple in manner too, he had an indescribable air of one who knew the world, and who would not have felt abashed at the governor's dinner table, or in King William's court, were it possible that his affairs should call him thither. But the only thing about him that could be fixed upon as remarkable was his staff, which bore the likeness of a great black snake, so curiously wrought that it might almost be seen to twist and wriggle itself like a living serpent. This, of course, must have been an ocular deception, assisted by the uncertain light. Come, Goodman Brown, cried his fellow traveler. This is a dull place for the beginning of a journey. Take my staff, if you are so soon weary. Friend, said the other, exchanging his slow pace for a full stop. Having kept covenant by meeting thee here, it is my purpose now to return whence I came. I have scruples touching the matter thou wast of. Sayest thou so, replied he of the serpent, smiling apart. Let 
us walk on, nevertheless, reasoning as we go. And if I convince thee not, thou shalt turn back. We are but a little way in the forest yet. Too far, too far, exclaimed the goodman, unconsciously resuming his walk. My father never went into the woods on such an errand, nor his father before him. We have been a race of honest men and good Christians since the days of the martyrs. And shall I be the first of the name of Brog that ever took this path and kept such company, thou wouldst say? Observed the elder person, interpreting his pause. Well, said Goodman Brown, I have been as well acquainted with your family as with ever one among the Puritans. And that's no trifle to say. I helped your grandfather, the constable, when he lashed the Quaker woman so smartly through the streets of Salem. And it was I that brought your father a pitch pine knot, kindled at my own hearth, to set fire to an Indian village in King Philip's war. They were my good friends both, and many a pleasant walk have we had along this path and returned merrily after midnight. I would fain be friends with you for their sake. If it be as thou sayest, replied Goodman Brown, I marvel they never spoke of these matters, or verily I marvel not, seeing that the least rumor of the sort would have driven them from New England. We are a people of prayer, and good works to boot, and abide no such wickedness. A wickedness or not, said the traveler with the twisted staff. I have a very general acquaintance here in New England. The deacons of many a church have drunk the communion wine with me. The selectmen of divers towns make me their chairman and a majority of the great and general court are firm supporters of my interest. The governor and I too, but these are state secrets. Can this be so? cried Goodman Brown with a stare of amazement at his undisturbed companion. Howbeit, I have nothing to do with the governor and council. They have their own ways and are no rule for a simple husbandman like me. But were I to go on with thee, how should I meet the eye of that good old man, our minister at Salem Village? Oh, his voice would make me tremble both Sabbath day and lecture day. Thus far, the elder traveler had listened with due gravity, but now burst into a fit of irrepressible mirth, shaking himself so violently that his snake-like staff actually seemed to wriggle in sympathy. <laughs> shouted he again and again, and composing himself. Well, go on, Goodman Brown, go on, but prithee don't kill me with laughing. Well then, to end the matter at once, said Goodman Brown, considerably nettled, there is my wife Faith. It would break her dear little heart, and I'd rather break my own. Nay, if that be the case, answered the other. In go thy ways, Goodman Brown. I would not for twenty old women like the one hobbling before us that faith should come to any harm. As he spoke, he pointed his staff at a female figure on the path in whom Goodman Brown recognized a very pious and exemplary dame, who had taught him his catechism in youth, and was still his moral and spiritual adviser, jointly with the minister and deacon Gookin. 
a marvel truly that goody cloys should be so far in the wilderness at nightfall said he but with your leave friend i shall take a cut through the woods until you have left this christian woman behind being a stranger to you she might ask whom i was consorting with and whither i was going be it so said his fellow traveler betake you to the woods and let me keep the path Accordingly, the young man turned aside, but took care to watch his companion, who advanced softly along the road until he had come within a staff's length of the old dame. She, meanwhile, was making the best of her way with singular speed for so aged a woman, and mumbling some indistinct words, a prayer doubtless, as she went. The traveler put forth his staff and touched her withered neck with what seemed the serpent's tail. Oh, screamed the pious old lady. And goody Cloyce knows her old friend, observed the traveler, confronting her and leaning on his riding stick. Ah, forsooth, is it your worship indeed? cried the good dame. Yea, truly is it, and in the very image of my old gossip, Goodman Brown. The grandfather of the silly fellow that now is. But would your worship believe it? My broomstick hath strangely disappeared, stolen, as I suspect, by that unhanged witch Goody Cory, and that too when I was all anointed with the juice of smallage and kinkfoil and wolfsbane. Mingled with fine weight and the fat of a newborn babe said the shape of old Goodman Brown. Ah, your worship knows the recipe, cried the old lady, cackling aloud. So as I was saying, being all ready for the meeting, and no horse to ride on, I made my mind to foot it, for they tell me there's a nice young man to be taken into communion tonight. But now your good worship will lend me your arm, and we shall be there in a twinkling. That can hardly be, answered her friend. I may not spare you my arm, goody Cloyce, but here is my staff, if you will. So saying, he threw it down at her feet, where, perhaps, it assumed life, being one of the rods which its owner had formerly lent to the Egyptian Magi. Of this fact, however, Goodman Brown could not take cognizance. He had cast up his eyes in astonishment, and, looking down again, beheld neither Goody Cloris nor the Serpentine Staff, but his fellow traveler alone, who waited for him as calmly as if nothing had happened. That old woman taught me my catechism, said the young man, and there was a world of meaning in this simple comment. They continued to walk onward while the elder traveler exhorted his companion to make good speed and persevere in the path, discoursing so aptly that his argument seemed rather to spring up in the bosom of his auditor than to be suggested by himself. As they went, he plucked a branch of maple to serve for a walking stick and began to strip it of the twigs and little bows which were wet with evening dew. The moment his fingers touched them, they became strangely withered and dried up as with a week's sunshine. Thus the pair proceeded, at a good free pace, until suddenly in a gloomy hollow of the road, 
Goodman Brown sat himself down on the stump of a tree and refused to go any farther. Friend, said he stubbornly, my mind is made up. Not another step will I budge on this errand. What if a wretched old woman do choose to go to the devil when I thought she was going to heaven? Is that any reason why I should quit my dear faith and go after her? You will think better of this by and by, said his acquaintance composedly. Sit here and rest yourself a while, and when you feel like moving again, that was my staff to help you along. Without more words, he threw his companion the maple stick, and was as speedily out of sight as if he had vanished into the deepening gloom. The young man sat a few moments by the roadside, applauding himself greatly and thinking with how clear a conscience he should meet the minister in his morning walk nor shrink from the eye of good old Deacon Gookin, and what calm sleep would be his that very night, which was to have been spent so wickedly, but so purely and sweetly now in the arms of faith. Amidst these pleasant and praiseworthy meditations, Goodman Brown heard the tramp of horses along the road, and deemed it advisable to conceal himself within the verge of the forest. Conscious of the guilty purpose that had brought him thither, though now so happily turned from it. On came the hoof tramps and the voices of the riders, two grave old voices, conversing soberly as they drew near. These mingled sounds appeared to pass along the road within a few yards of the young man's hiding place, but owing doubtless to the depth of the gloom at that particular spot. Neither the travelers nor the steeds were visible. Though their figures brushed the small bows by the wayside, it could not be seen that they intercepted, even for a moment, the faint gleam from the strip of bright sky athwart which they must have passed. Goodman Brown alternately crouched and stood on tiptoe, pulling aside the branches and thrusting forth his head as far as he durst without discerning so much as a shadow. It vexed him the more, because he could have sworn, were such a thing possible, that he recognized the voices of the minister and Deacon Gookin jogging along quietly, as they were wont to do when bound to some ordination or ecclesiastical council. While yet within hearing, one of the riders stopped to pluck a switch. Of the two, reverend sir, said a voice like the deacon's, I'd rather miss an ordination dinner than tonight's meeting. They tell me that some of our community are to be here from Falmouth and beyond, and others from Connecticut and Rhode Island, besides several of the Indian powwows, who, after their fashion, know almost as much deviltry as the best of us. Moreover, there is a goodly young woman to be taken into communion. Mighty well, Deacon Gukin, replied the solemn old tones of the minister. Spare up, or we shall be late. Nothing can be done, you know, until I get on the ground. The hoofs clattered again, and the voices, talking so strangely in the empty air, passed on through the forest where no church had ever been gathered or solitary Christian prayed. Whither, then, could these holy men be journeying so deep into the heathen wilderness? Young Goodman Brown caught hold of a tree for support, being ready to sink down to the ground, faint and overburdened with the heavy sickness of his heart. He looked up to the sky, doubting whether there really was a heaven above him. Yet, there was the blue arch, and the stars brightening in it. With heaven above and faith below, 
I will yet stand firm against the devil, cried Gundon Brown, while he still gazed upward into the deep arch of the firmament and had lifted his hands to pray. A cloud, though no wind was stirring, hurried across the zenith and hid the frightening stars. The blue sky was still visible, except directly overhead, where this black mass of cloud was sweeping swiftly northward. Aloft in the air, as if from the depths of the cloud, came a confused and doubtful sound of voices. Once the listener fancied that he could distinguish the accents of townspeople of his own. Men and women, both pious and ungodly, many of whom he had met at the communion table, and had seen others rioting at the tavern. The next moment, so indistinct were the sounds, he doubted whether he had heard aught but the murmur of the old forest, whispering without a wind. Then came a stronger swell of those familiar tones, heard daily in the sunshine at Salem Village. But never until now, from a cloud of night, there was one voice of a young woman, uttering lamentations, yet with an uncertain sorrow and entreating for some favor which, perhaps, it would grieve her to obtain, and all the unseen multitude, both saints and sinners, seemed to encourage her onward. Faith! shouted Goodman Brown in a voice of agony and desperation, and the echoes of the forest mocked him, crying, as if bewildered wretches were seeking her all through the wilderness. A cry of grief, rage, and terror was yet piercing the night when the unhappy husband held his breath for a response. There was a scream, drowned immediately in a louder murmur of voices, fading into far-off laughter as the dark cloud swept away, leaving the clear and silent sky above Goodman Brown. But something fluttered lightly down through the air and caught on the branch of a tree. The young man seized it and beheld a pink ribbon. My faith is God! cried he, after one stupefied. There is no good on earth, and sing is my name. Come, the devil, for to me is the world given. And, maddened with despair so that he laughed loud and long, <laughs> did Goodman Brown grasp his staff and set forth again, at such a rate that he seemed to fly along the forest path rather than walk or run. The road grew wilder and drearier and more faintly traced and vanished at length, leaving him in the heart of the dark wilderness, still rushing onward with the instinct that guides mortal man to evil. The whole forest was peopled with frightful sounds, the creaking of trees, the howling of wild beasts, and the yelling Indians, while sometimes the wind tolled like a distant church bell and sometimes gave a broad roar around the traveler, as if all nature were laughing him to scorn. But he was himself the chief horror of the scene, and shrank not from its other horrors. <laughs> Roared Gooden Brown when the wind laughed at him. Let us see which will laugh the loudest. Think not to frighten me with your devil tree. Come, witch. Come, wizard. 
Come, Indian Bow Wow, come, Devil himself, and here comes Goodman Brown. You may as well fear him as he fear you. In truth, all through the haunted forest, there could be nothing more frightful than the figure of Goodman Brown. On he flew among the black pines, brandishing his staff with frenzied gestures, now giving vent to an inspiration of a horrid blasphemy. And now, shouting forth such laughter as set all the echoes of the forest laughing like demons around him. The fiend in his own shape is less hideous than when he rages in the breast of man. Thus sped the demoniac on his course, until, quivering among the trees, he saw a red light before him. As when the felled trunks and branches of a clearing have been set on fire, and throw up their lurid blaze against the sky at the hour of midnight. He paused in a lull of the tempest that had driven him onward and heard the swell of what seemed to him rolling solemnly from a distance with the weight of many voices. He knew the tune. It was a familiar one in the choir of the village meeting house. The verse died heavily away and was lengthened by a chorus not of human voices of all the sounds of the benighted wilderness pealing in awful harmony together. Goodman Brown cried out, no! and his cry was lost to his own ear by his unison with the cry of the desert. In the interval of silence, he stole forward until the light glared full upon his eyes. At one extremity of an open space, hemmed in by the dark wall of the forest, arose a rock bearing some rude natural resemblance either to an altar or a Surrounded by four blazing pines, their tops aflame, their stems untouched, like candles at an evening meeting. The massive foliage that had overgrown the summit of the rock was all on fire, blazing high into the night, fitfully illuminating the whole field. Each pendant twig and leafy festoon was in a blaze. As the red light arose and fell, a numerous congregation alternately shone forth, then disappeared in shadow, and again grew, as it were, out of the darkness, peopling the heart of the solitary woods at once. A grave and dark, clad company, quoth Quentin Brown. In truth, they were such, among them, quivering to and fro between gloom and splendor, appeared faces that would be seen next day at the council board of the province, and others, which Sabbath after Sabbath, looked devoutly heavenward and benignantly over the crowded pews from the holiest pulpits in the land. Some affirmed that the lady of the governor was also there, at least there were high dames well known to her and wives of honored husbands and widows. A great multitude of ancient maidens, all of excellent repute, and fair young girls who trembled lest their mothers should espy them. Either the sudden gleams of light flashing over the obscure field bedazzled Goodman Brown, or he recognized a score of the church members of Salem Village, famous for their special sanctity. Good old Deacon Gookin had arrived waited at the skirts of that venerable saint, his revered pastor. But, irreverently consorting with these 
this gray of reputable and pious people, these elders of the church, these chaste dames and dewy virgins, there were men of dissolute lives and women of spotted fame, wretches given over to all mean and filthy vice and suspected even of horrid crimes. It was strange to see that the good shrank not from the wicked, nor were the sinners abashed by the saints. Scattered also among their pale-faced enemies were the Indian priests, or powwows, who had often scarred their native forests with more hideous incantations than any known to English witchcraft. But where's faith? thought Goodman Brown, and as hope came into his heart, he trembled. Another verse of the hymn arose. A slow and mournful strain, such as the pious love, but joined to words which expressed all that our nature can conceive of sin, and darkly hinted at far more. Unfathomable to mere mortals is the lore of fiends. Verse after verse was sung. Still the chorus of the desert swelled beneath like the deepest tone of a mighty organ. And with the final peal of that dreadful anthem there came a sound as if the roaring wind, the rushing streams, the howling of the beasts, and every other voice of the unconcerted wilderness were mingling and according with the voice of guilty man in homage to the prince of all. The four blazing pines threw up a loftier flame, and obscurely discovered shapes and visages of horror on the smoke wreaths above the impious assembly. At the same moment, the fire on the rock shot redly forth formed a glowing arch above its base where now appeared a figure. With reverence be it spoken, the figure bore no slight similitude, both in garb and manner, to some grave divine of the New England churches. Bring forth the converts! cried a voice that echoed through the field and rolled into the forest. At the word, Gooden Brown stepped forth from the shadow of the trees and approached the congregation with whom he felt a loathful brotherhood by the sympathy of all that was wicked in his heart. He could have well nigh sworn the shape of his own dead father beckoned him to advance, looking downward from a smoke wreath while a woman with dim features of despair threw out her hand to warn him back. Was it his mother? But he had no power to retreat step, nor to resist even in thought, when the minister and good old Deacon Gookin seized his arms and led him to the blazing rock. Thither came also the slender form of a veiled female led between Goody Cloyce, that pious teacher of the Catechism, and Martha Carrier, who had received the devil's promise to be queen of hell. A rampant hag was she, and there stood the proselytes beneath the canopy of fire. Welcome, my children, said the dark figure, to the communion of your race. Ye have found us young, your nature, and your destiny, my children, behind.
flashing forth, as it were, in a sheet of flame, the fiend worshippers were seen. The smile of welcome gleamed darkly on every visage. Yeah. Resumed the sable form. Are all ye of reverence from youth? Ye deemed them holier than yourselves, and shrank from your own sins, contrasting it with their lives of righteousness and prayerful aspirations heavenward. Yet, here are they all in my worshiping assembly. This night it shall be granted to know their secret deeds. How horrid here the elders of the church of Western want towards the young maids of their households. How many a woman, eager for widows, weeps has given her husband a drink at that time and let him sleep his last sleep in her bosom. Naturally, in the rock, did it contain water reddened by the lurid light? 
Or was it blood? Or perchance a liquid flame? Herein did the shape of evil dip his hand and prepare to lay the mark of baptism upon their foreheads, that they might be partakers in the mystery of sin, more conscious of the secret guilt of others, both in deed and thought, than they could now be of their own. The husband cast one look at his pale wife, and faith at him. What polluted wretches would the next glance show them to each other, shuddering alike at what they disclosed and what they saw? Faith! Faith! cried the husband. Look up to heaven and resist the wicked one. Whether Faith obeyed, he knew not. Hardly had he spoken when he found himself amid calm night and solitude listening to a roar of the wind which died heavily away through the forests. He staggered against the rock and felt it chill and damp, while a hanging twig that had been all on fire besprinkled his cheek with the coldest dew. The next morning, Goodman Brown came slowly into the street of Salem Village, staring around him like a bewildered man. The good old minister was taking a walk along the graveyard to get an appetite for breakfast and meditate his sermon, and bestowed a blessing as he passed on Goodman Brown. He shrank from the venerable saint as if to avoid an anathema. Old Deacon Gookin was at domestic worship, and the holy words of his prayer were heard through the open window. What god doth the wizard pray to? quoth Goodman Brown. Goody Noyce, that excellent old Christian stood in the early sunshine at her own lattice, catechizing a little girl who had brought her a pint of morning's milk. Goodman Brown snatched away the child as from the grasp of the fiend himself. Turning the corner by the meeting house, he spied the head of Faith, with the pink ribbons gazing anxiously forth, and bursting into such joy at sight of him that she skipped along the street and almost kissed her husband before the whole village. But Goodman Brown looked sternly sadly into her face, and passed on without a greeting. Had Goodman Brown fallen asleep in the forest and only dreamed a wild dream of a witch meeting? Be it so, if you will, but alas, it was a dream of evil omen for young Goodman Brown. A stern, a sad, a darkly meditative, a distrustful, if not desperate man did he become from the night of that fearful dream. On the Sabbath day, when the congregation were singing a holy psalm, he could not listen because an anthem of sin rushed loudly upon his ear and drowned all the blessed strain. When the minister spoke from the pulpit with power and fervid eloquence, and with his hand on the open Bible of the sacred truths of our religion and of saint-like lives and triumphant deaths, and of future bliss or misery unutterable, then did Goodman Brown turn pale, dreading lest the roof should thunder down upon the gray blasphemer and his hearers. Often, walking suddenly at midnight, he shrank from the bosom of faith, and at morning or eventide, when the family knelt down at prayer, he scowled and muttered to himself, and gazed sternly at his wife, and turned away. And when he had lived long, and was born to his grave a hoary corpse followed by faith, an aged woman, and children and grandchildren in goodly procession. Besides neighbors not a few, they carve no hopeful verse upon
his tombstone. For his dying hour was gloom. me the best kind of chills. The speech at the end. Uh, I remember the first time I read this story, I was in summer school uh, between 10th and 11th grade. Uh, I skipped almost all of my classes in 10th grade, because, uh, you know, why not? And uh, as a result, uh, I encountered this story. So, kids, worth it. Uh, anyway, anyway, don't, don't actually skip class, but, um, uh, there was just a selection of short stories that we had to do a book report on, and I encountered this, and I didn't expect anything, but, oh man, it just, oh, it just spoke to my edgy, post-Christian, somewhat Wicca teenage soul. Oh, frickin' just... Oh, Hawthorne is just... I just refer to him, to my partners, as puritanical edge bay. Uh, he's... a lot. But he meant well, um... I don't know if any of you are interested in literature history, but uh, Hawthorne's father uh, was actually uh, Judge Haythorne, uh, one of the more infamous judges, I'm led to believe, of the Salem witch hunts. Just absolutely brutal. Um, so to distance himself from his father, uh, Nathaniel Haythorne added a W to his name and forever after was known as Nathaniel Hawthorne. Because even in the 1800s, we were still trying to piss off our overly religious asshole parents. Hawthorne's written so, so much. He is one of the founding fathers of gothic horror. Uh, he was writing horror long before August Derleth and H.P. Lovecraft could even pick up a pencil. And, uh, you know, not to throw some shade at H.P. Lovecraft, but to throw some shade, Hawthorne never had trouble describing shit, man. Indescribable fuck. Uh, that's just a grudge my wife and I have against Lovecraft. Uh, one of my, one of my favorite parts of just Hawthorne in general is that his horror, he didn't just write horror, um, but his, his horror stories, a lot of them had to do with the corruption in the Catholic Church, and he was very heavy-handed in his writing. I, I mean, Faith, come on. Oh, jeez, and don't get me started on the pink ribbons. How could she be ever unhappy when she had pink ribbons? Fucking, ugh. Oh my god, it's bad. Anyway, um, you know, heavy-handed as it was, the fact of the matter is Hawthorne was still religious for the rest of his life, and because of that, I, I don't know, I could be speaking out of my ass, but I feel like it gave it 
you know, gave his, his stories and criticisms of the church uh, a little bit of an air of legitimacy to like-minded Puritans of the time. Not horror, but uh, one of my absolute favorite things uh, ever, honestly. Uh, and they're they're free. Uh, like they're, Nathaniel Hawthorne is like so dead, guys. His shit is free. Just read it. Just grab it. Just read it. Um, like you have no reason to pay for it, and every reason to read it. But anyway, like one of the best things ever to me. Just the collected work volumes of letters between he and his wife. They are so pure. It's. Uh, uh, I might just, I don't know, if anyone ends up listening to this and people like it for whatever reason, I, I might I might just have to read a couple of them at some point. My wife and I can probably do something, it'd be really cute. Or my boyfriend, because he's a guy that might... It doesn't fucking matter. Whoever. I'm ethically polyamorous, don't panic. Um, uh, they're just some of... They're so sweet, these, these love letters and... Uh, like, there's one where he just goes on the entire, like, like two paragraphs about how cute his wife's little button nose is and how important it is to kiss it. Like, guys, I am, I can't exist. Like, it's perfect. Well, I guess it's time to stop rambling. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't mean to pull a Sheldy Scott on you, but, I, I mean, that's my truth. Uh... If you don't know who Shelby Scott is, go listen to Scare You to Sleep. Just do it. It's excellent. Uh, um, oh man, she does these guided nightmares. Uh, holy crap, guys. And I, I guess if you are Shelby Scott, LOL, uh, you inspired me to do this. So thank you. Uh, you're amazing. Regardless of who you are, thank you for listening. Um, I mean, even if there's only one of you, that's... It's amazing. That's one more listener than I thought I'd have. Thank you. I appreciate you spending your time listening to my little thing. Uh, things I have to say. Uh, story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Sound effects and music and such. From zapsplat.com. Free account. They're super cool and they're not paying me to say this because no one's paying me. I will let you go, listeners. Thank you for joining our little communion in the void, and I hope to see you next time.